breaking out the silo of your of the Figma file and screens that you're designing for and just getting out and mapping it up and mapping it, it on a whiteboard and getting out there and speaking to customers and changing that mapper and having that more holistic view of design was, was a real turning point for me. And even though I don't work in a service design capacity these days, like that mentality still sticks with me. The discipline of design is now key to building great products. More and more companies are making space for it at the higher levels. More people than ever want to become designers. And most of us who already do the job want to find ways to have just a little bit more impact in our teams. Welcome to Design Meets Business. I'm Christian Vasile, and on this podcast, I bring you world-class product and design leaders who found ways to shape products, companies, and entire industries, and who are now sharing what they know with you and me. My hope is that we all get to learn from the experiences, ideas, and stories shared on this podcast, and in the process, become better designers. Season three is jam-packed with design and product leaders who we're going to learn a lot from. And we're kicking off today with Nate Langley. Nate is a design manager at Monzo, and we chat about the importance of practicing and putting the work in. We're talking about confidence, about constraints and how to reframe them, about how to put your best foot forward in interviews, and much more. We're covering a lot of ground in this episode, and I hope you'll enjoy listening to it. Nate, welcome to Design Miss Business. I am delighted to have you on today. For a bit of context, you're managing a team of designers at Monzo, one of the most exciting banks in Europe, and you're also leading design for personal banking. You're working on a very good product. You're managing talented designers. You're mentoring an ADP list. You do a lot, and we'll hopefully have time to dive into some of these topics today. But before that, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got here from the beginnings of your career till today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Christian. I really appreciate you giving me the time today. So yeah, I've been a designer for 15 years. And I started off like most people after university trying to figure out what they want to do and uh, found myself in the design industry. I really wanted to get into digital art, so I was quite savvy with Photoshop uh, and then figuring out how to work within the constraints of the web. It was a bit of a wild west back then, what the web world was. And I really just enjoyed it. And I learned a lot from people that I worked with. And then about eight years ago, I moved up to Manchester and joined a service design agency up here in the community up in, in Manchester is really great. And I learned a lot about designing customer and user-centric experiences and service design was a big part of that. And I joined the co-op six, probably seven years ago now. And that was when my design leadership really started to, I started to get my teeth into design leadership a bit more. And yeah, to just nearly 18 months ago, I joined Monza Bank and here I am. I'm helping build a, a new bank for the future and it's a really exciting place to be and hopefully I can give some little tidbits on, on what that journey looked like for me and help others get to a good stage in their career. It's also a great product, I must say. I am a, a, an avid user of Bonzo, so it's also great to talk to someone who's building products that you're using on a daily basis. It's just very interesting, also on a personal basis, on a personal um, uh, note for me. Did you study design or how did you end up becoming one? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I didn't study design. I don't think there were many UX or UI courses uh, about when I was at university. So I actually studied film, which I, I take a lot of inspiration and methods from my time learning about narrative structure and how films are made into the work that I do now, especially from a service design perspective. Like talking about customer journeys is effectively the, the the North Star customer journeys that you're designing and building are effectively stories and, and movies, really. You're, you're helping as a hero get to the, the quest, like complete their goal, aren't you? I, I left uni and I was like, ah. I did a few sort of running jobs. I worked for MTV for a little bit and I worked for uh, my godmother was a producer. So she got me some work and it just wasn't really clicking for me. But I was always good with computers and I thought, oh, maybe I could do a bit of digital art. And I don't, I don't know if you remember DeviantArt, 
leaving out of course big, yes right yeah <laughs> so <laughs> someone just brought it up to me the other day it found me randomly i didn't even know you had one of those <laughs> i didn't even remember i had one so I, so i had to quickly yeah. delete it because it was so embarrassing <laughs> yeah i i got a feeling i might have to delete it after this as well and i i i was just i was really interested in like photo manipulation and i was big into photoshop and like pushing the constraints of photoshop but then the web was just really taking off it was post.com boom i think the web was really kicking off again and i was like oh this is really interesting and uh i was doing some like marketing work for a local business and i was just like knocking out leaflets for them and stuff like that i was a marketing executive but they were like, we don't know how to use Quark. We don't know how to use Photoshop. Like, just give it to Nate. He'll do it. He's the young one. So they just, yeah, I just learned how to use, I think it was Dreamweaver at the time and just crafting a bit of webs. And at, in the evenings, I was like, actually, and like when you're like early 20s, I had nothing else to do. I was actually, actually, this is, this is something I'm really enjoying. So I, in the evenings, I was like teaching myself like the principles, of web design and stuff like that. And then, yeah, one thing led to another. And I was working for a, a, an agency in London called LBI. They had one of their big clients was Marks and Spencer's. And I got a job there and they, yeah, put me on the Marks and Spencer account. And that was great. And that was the first time I encountered like Scrum and Agile and working in that kind of way. So it was kind of like a very uh, windy road to get to my career. And it wasn't, it didn't, the windiness didn't st stop there. I, left UD, wasn't really sure what to do. And then, yeah, found my way in the world of web. And I was like, wow, oh, I like it. I'm pretty good at it and taught myself principles. I think that was that part of my career really set me up to the rest of, rest of uh, my career, really. The confidence angle came later because looking back on it now, like I struggled a lot with my confidence in my career. Um, but I was like, I don't have a formal design career. I don't have a very standard route into the industry nobody can take me seriously as, as a designer it was a big uh, monkey on my back for a while so how have you overcome it because i assume there's something that quite a few people are struggling with perhaps earlier in their careers is, is it a matter of just putting in the work and one day you're going to wake up and you're confident or have you done anything else <laughs> oh we got a whole pod podcast for that i remember in that first job a guy called james and it was all at the beginning of our career and it was real the, the MS job was a real sort of art worker's job it was like they're gonna throw you a bunch of images and you go come out uh, this is pre like any kind of automation so we used to sit in these big banks of desks and mess about and stuff and then every now and then they give you some quote-unquote proper design work to do so oh can you design this banner or can you die can you just like work on this little bit of a journey as yeah cool and I always used to do that. And then have, obviously there's a critique process and I was like, oh yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'll, next time I'll get that right. And yeah, and I used to apologize quite a lot. And then one morning, no, after one of those crits, James wrote a massive post-it note in big bold letters. He said, stop apologizing. And I asked him why. And now, now I end up speaking to a lot of designers that I mentor and coach. And I think there's a nice balance between being humble and like being confident it's okay to apologize now it's absolutely fine like you should like when things go wrong or like you you've missed you've misstepped somewhere like sorry is a good isn't a good and arguably a powerful word so it's okay to say sorry but saying sorry a lot it can put a different spin on that whole that whole relationship and that whole conversation since then like that was over 15 years ago i've been through a lot of jobs a lot of very high profile jobs and very high pressure jobs where I could feel that late in my early mid twenties coming back, creeping back. And uh, confidence has always been something I've really struggled with, especially in my career and uh, had depression and anxiety for most of my life. I think I've always, always struggled with, with my confidence in work and life. And it came to a head around 10 years ago where I was like, this is getting ridiculous. I can't carry on like this. And it was a, a little bit of a crossroads in my career as well. So do I want to stay in design? Do I want to do I want to carry on doing this? Because I was working on some quite high profile, high pressure projects. And and I don't I never thought I was really cracking 
the industry. I wasn't really cracking my career. So I was with a therapist and obviously I've got a, a, a pretty good support network with my wife and my friends and I've got a lot of good mentors and friends in the industry. It really helped me build up my confidence. And it's not something you could do overnight. Definitely it's not something that happens overnight. It was a process. It was a process of putting yourself in a position where you can build your confidence as well. When I speak to designers who are looking to get a new job, I didn't, a lot of them say, like, how do I build my confidence in the first few months? And my number one piece of advice is go after the, the projects that you are comfortable with. Don't overstretch yourself. Don't overstretch yourself in, in the first few months and try and trying to do the big meaty project and wow everybody because you're bound to that can't you, you can find success like that but you're bound to fail and believe me i've done it <laughs> and that kind of set me up in the middle of my career as well like i made sure that i wasn't overstretching myself because i think at the time i was taking on some i was trying to do too much with my design i was trying to make it too flashy i was trying to make it i was trying to stand out and I had a realization that actually, let me get the basics right. Let me just nail this UX. Let me just nail this piece of customer insight. So I'm making a good, like baseline good, right? Don't overstretch it. Don't no flashy animations or anything else. That layer can come later. Um, so yeah, it was a process of therapy, support network, uh, like identifying the space. So you kind of had this realization that I was probably pushing myself too far and then working through it at the end of the day christian it's not something that's so even now like i'm still facing challenges every week that is outside of my comfort zone sometimes i'm like oh, is, am i the right person for this job but i think that's natural i think most people have those wobbles every now and then thanks for sharing that i think we often look at design leaders and think oh they must have it all figured out just because they're a design right. leader. And it doesn't even have to be a design leader, just leaders in general. You look at people leading companies and people leading movements, whatever it may be. And I think we tend to forget that they are human too. And then they might be also struggling with something. So thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate the honesty. And I think it's something that, that more people should be open about because at the end of the day, I think we're all struggling with something. One, um, or actually I heard this thing once that stuck with me. Someone said, just be kind to people because you never know what they're battling with. And I think perhaps in the context of work, that's also important because it's not only what you're battling on a, on a personal basis, but it's also all these balls that everyone else has to juggle that you don't know about. It's the, it's the things that your cross-functional partners might care about that you have no clue that is something they care about, whether it's a metric that they need to hit, whether it's a performance review problem that they had and therefore they need to do this thing uh, in a completely different way than you proposed because that will help them. There's all these other things that we don't know. And I think that oftentimes we don't, uh, we perhaps don't have that empathy. Someone said to me this once, uh, or I've read it somewhere, I don't remember. Confidence is nothing else other than repeated demonstrated performance. And that stuck with me as well because I'm looking at my career, I think, it's natural not to be very confident when you're doing something you deep down perhaps know that you're not very good at because you're early on. That's completely okay. But as you keep doing that thing time and time again, whether it's running interviews, I can, we can all remember running our first interview. I can remember running my first interview, an absolute disaster. But you do it once, you do it twice, you do it three times, you do it 50 times, and suddenly you think, oh, quite confident running these interviews. Now I can run them on my own and I don't need anyone to handhold me. And it's because you've done it several times. I think putting the work in is something that we perhaps also forget that it's important. And let's use this segue to go into talking a little bit about people starting out. There's a lot of information out there. There are books, there are podcasts, there are courses. There's a lot. If you want to become a designer today, it's so overwhelming. Where where do you start from? How do you begin? What do you think is the best way? I really appreciate that point around practice. There's a really good there's a really good book called Peak, which I definitely recommend to anybody to read. I and that really resonated with me. It's like when looking around at some of the designers I was working with, which were the top of their game at the time, I was like, Wow, these people got it all figured out. How'd they do it? I read that book and I suppose at the time it was a lot about practice and, and refining your craft. 
they weren't just born with this amazing design eye or they weren't born with this incredible way of like, visualizing user journeys, but they put the work in and they crafted their process. So definitely I'm a big advocate for practice. Design industry is a very different beast to now than it was when I started out. It's There's a lot of formalized education now where there's a lot more support structures out there. However, the industry as of November 2023 is in a, is a very is a, is in a bit of a state um, at the moment. We've had a lot of big name redundancies uh, over the course of the year. Companies are starting to hire a bit more now, but they've still not picked up to the crazy hiring we've experienced the past few years. So it's a it's a pretty challenging environment for anybody starting their career, let alone finding a job halfway through their career. I don't speak to many people just starting out on their career. I give a lot of advice for people who've probably had two or three years or like looking at career change, as in like the IC manager tracking or like help in the middle of their career. But when I do speak to people at the beginning of their career, I try to coach them through trying to be very proactive. It's quite easy to leave, and I've been there as well, quite easy to leave formalized education. I think, great, I've got a degree. I've, I've spent all this money informalized education give me a job uh, it's, yeah i appreciate where that's coming from the sentiment because you put the work in you've paid for, for your formalized education now you want to see the results of it unfortunately the the work industry is not not like that so you need to go out and put yourself out there a bit more than you probably think you do and as a somebody starting at the beginning of their career you really have to set yourself apart from a very competitive landscape some of the best junior or people with zero years experience people that i've hired are the people who have really shown like shown something different and gone the extra mile and i want to caveat that look everybody's got their lives they it's a it's a very privileged position to be in to work after work and to craft on your portfolio but I want to give a great example of somebody that I hired a few years ago at the co-op. We were running a few portfolio uh, workshops. So it was working with people with career changes, but people who had just left university or, or art school or design school that were struggling to find some work. And the, some of the best people that I was really impressed with in those portfolio workshops were people who had really had fun with their portfolio. And I don't mean like, animations or anything flashy like that but they've gone okay so i understand about the design process and i'm going to apply it to my application so they've user journeyed they've mapped out their their career so far and they've researched with friends and family and stuff like that i was like that's really cool you you found a different angle to to apply for a job and set yourself apart and there was this one guy who had no experience whatsoever but he'd done a bit of research into the design process and he had an idea for an app and he was like i'm just going to mock it up in figma so he mocked it up and then he learned that he had to go and do some like user testing he's like, I, I don't have access to a lab or anything like that so i'm just going to test it with my friends and family and he documented the whole process he took pictures of himself <laughs> carried out and speaking to his friends and family he's put it on figma mirror he's put it on the phone he's got them tapping around and he made a pretty cool little prototype all the best portfolios that I see have a beginning, a middle, and an end. You're telling a story, aren't you? So he identified the beginning, which was like, here's the problem space. Here's the problem I've identified, and here's how I'm going to do it. He's, the middle is how he's done it, and he took pictures of himself testing with and then iterating on that design with his friends and family, and then the ultimate product and like how he would do it next and his vision for it. And I thought, that is wicked. So <laughs> like just, just pushing that out there and just having a bit of fun with it. And he had three of those examples. Later on, I asked him, like, how, honestly, how long did that take you? He's obviously put in a few hours, but it was, I just had fun with it. So I guess my advice for people starting off, are be proactive, put yourself out there, find the connections, have fun with your portfolios, see what, that, what ways you can set yourself apart. And uh, yeah, just use the, it doesn't matter that you don't have any sort of real world experience. If you can just, apply the principles of design to a case study or an idea you have doesn't matter about the idea no offense to that guy i can't even remember the uh, the idea but i remember the process and the way he presented it 
I like that. I think oftentimes we tend to look for a process of something, to, to do something perhaps more effectively or see what others have had success with. And therefore, if you look around the industry today, all portfolios more or less look the same, not from a visual perspective, but more, more from a content perspective. There's a, a framework that everyone is following. And I think every once in a while, you stumble upon a portfolio that is just somehow different. And even if that person might not be the right person for the job, it at least makes you want to bring them in for an interview just because they've done something different, just because they stand out a little bit and they display a little bit of creativity that is so needed these days. And I always appreciate when I see some of those. So I think this is a, another great example. But you said something there around having fun. And it also relates to something that you said earlier, which is the way you started in design. You picked up all these tools and then you were just having fun. No pressure. You were just doing it because it was fun. We've lost that a little bit. I don't really see a lot of designers do things, learn new tools, pick up new things just for fun. I don't really have a question. I think that's, that's more of a, of a comment than an observation that I made. You've um, mentioned this place in a career where you do mentor quite a few designers, which is mid-level. They might be on the verge of uh, becoming managers or at least being considered for a managerial role. And one of the tensions that I often hear about is I am at that level. I'm a senior, I'm a lead, whatever the progression is in a specific company. And I'm at the crossroads now. I can continue doing the work as an individual contributor, but I also have the opportunity of managing a team. And I have no idea which one is right for me. Now, most of us know how it is to be an individual contributor because that's how we start and that's what we've been. But very few of us know how it is to be a manager before you are actually a manager. How do you decide which one is right for you? Yeah, my, my experience has been, it was kind of a position of necessity at the time. When I speak to a lot of ICs who are figuring out what their next steps are, I really try and ask some questions to get under the skin of why they're asking these questions in the first place. A lot of companies don't have the IC versus manager track or they have a blended version of that. And a lot of ICs get to a point in a moment in their career where it's, I want more responsibility. I want more money because at the end of the day, that's why we work, let's face it. I want more money and I want to climb the ladder a bit more. I want to get uh, more responsibility. And the other one, which is crucial, is I want to start influencing. And as a designer, that's really important because we want to make sure that we're considering the user at all stages of the business process. And you get to this inflection point, ah, okay, so I can influence my team and the teams around me. But to really be customer-centric or user-centric, I need to influence business strategy. So I ask questions around like probing deep into this subject. Like why, what is, what's motivating you to, to think about this split in your journey? And you get to those three core things most of the time. I do believe that if you are on the IC track and you're enjoying design and those things come up, I want more money, I want more influence over, over business strategy, then you, you could start to say, okay, that there's an IC world out there for you. We have it at Monzo, and I, I know that some of the biggest tech companies have it as well, but having an IC at a very, like a staff or principal level where you influence business strategy is a very viable track, and a lot of people take that route. If you ask those questions at that time and you go, actually, um, you get the signals that, oh, actually, I really enjoy working with people. I like developing people's careers and like coaching them through things, then... That's a different matter. That's the manager track for you. So you might find that people management and working with people is, is the right thing for you. That's not to say that the IC role doesn't involve any like people management. There is an element of that. And equally, if you go down the manager track, I've noticed a trend of managers and leadership folks moving back towards more of the work. A great article by Kat Watkins, a blog post a couple of months ago now that you put out around like, taking more inspiration from the traditional creative director role of like leaning in a bit more and providing guidance on the work itself and I, I advocate and I believe of that too I ask the questions and I, I never tell people what to do but like there you you get to a point where it's like oh actually you're signaling to me that you're really into the people stuff and 
you're really interested in people and like how they work and how they tick and stuff. So maybe management tracks up for you or like IC trackers, oh, you can have influence on the business strategy level and uh, all that good stuff. But I've, in my experience, I found it's not so binary. It's not so black and white. You still get to do a bit of both. Like I'm now leaning much more into the IC work because the work demands it at the moment. Like I'm hiring for a designer and they're, they're steaming ahead on their goals and they need design representation, so I'm leaning in. So I'm now effectively a hybrid design manager and IC at the moment. It's not like I'm going to make this decision and then I'm never going to be an IC again or I make this decision and I'm never going to work with people because it's not that's not totally true. I've known people who have gone five years down the management track and they've gone, actually, it's not for me. I'm ready to go back to being an IC. And they've done that. And I think people get so paralyzed with fear that they're on this crossroads now and whatever path they take is the one that they're completely beholden to for the rest of their career. And I don't think that's true. Yeah, and I also think there are, there is becoming more and more normal for people to switch between the tracks you go down a path and you realize, well, this might not be for me. But even if it is for you, maybe you're also excited to try out what's on the other side. So I think more and more companies are now having opportunities for people to move between the two tracks. But I think, as you said, perhaps one of the most important things you said there is that even if you go down one of these paths, it's not black and white. You're not only going to manage on the managerial track and you're not only going to design on the design track. I was talking to one of my friends who is deep down on the IC track and he said that one thing that I did not realize is that there is a lot of people management on the IC track as well. Not necessarily from the perspective of I manage a designer or a team of designers. It's more like I man- I need to manage stakeholders. I still manage to manage stakeholders. I still need to manage all my cross-functional partners. I don't sit in Figma all day. I sit in Figma much less than I used to do when I was a, a, a lead designer or a senior. There is, is still a lot of people work involved. Uh, it's just, that's not necessarily um, the sort of the focus, but you still get to do both. So I think oh, I like that idea of don't be paralyzed there because there, first of all, you can always go back. And second of all, it's not that binary. So I assume that's uh, something that a lot of people come to you to ask for advice. You know, you do a lot of mentoring. So what are some other things that people come to you that you hear very often? What are some of the patterns there that designers in the industry are struggling with? Yeah, so that's a big one, the IC versus manager one. I get a lot of, there's a lot of designers looking for work at the moment. So advice on how to get noticed, how to get a job. The other big subject I get is people have moved into a leadership position and are really excited for the opportunity, but then it really hits home that they're in a leadership position and they've got a lot of burning fires that they need to help either like temper or put out. And you don't realize it's like peeking behind the curtain a little bit when you get into that leadership position. I've spoken to a few people who have leadership has been pushed onto them because of circumstance, which that's how I got into the in, uh, into management as well. It got pushed onto me. And then you're like, and, and all your like peers at that level go, cool, now these are all your problems, <laughs> crack on. So yeah, those are the three things that I get. People trying to crack into the industry, help with like, portfolio and interview skills. People just just trying to figure out whether to go down to IC or management and then, oh no, I'm a manager, and what do I do? <laughs> We've talked about portfolios already and how to stand out when you put yours together. But we've not talked so much about interviewing. That's also the other part of getting a job. I always say the portfolio's job is not to get you the job. The portfolio's job is to get you the interview. And then the interview is a whole different beast. So let's say you have a bit more experience. You're not completely new. You're just out of a job and then um, you interview. And it's pretty cutthroat out there right now. So you're not going to interview against one other person. You might interview against five, ten other final candidates or so. How do you stand out and what can you do to put your best foot forward in interviews these days? Yes, the million dollar question. I think when you get to the middle of your career and you've got a few years under your belt, you should be able to hit a few signals in the interview process. We think of the signals as five pillars. So like product thinking, like how you think around UX and your interaction design, visual design, teamwork and collaboration and, and leadership. And 
your CV and your portfolio and those first few interactions in the interview really have to give interviewers enough of the signals across those five pillars to really get you in. And then you can go dive deep on, on some of them because nobody's going to index 100% into each of those things. You might be an amazing product thinker, but your visual design is probably a little bit scaled, a little bit back. And that's going to change throughout your career. But what interviewers are looking for is like how it's to get a, a really clear picture of that spider diagram. You need to give signal out across all five of those pillars in the first few interactions across your CV and portfolio, and then probably recruitment call. And then once we go, okay, we've got enough signal that this person knows their onions, you go into the interview loop, you probably do a case study review, you might have a craft review as well, and then we can really understand where your uh, quote-unquote T-shape really dives into. Uh, where, what's, your, what's your specialism? What, what's your thing? So you mentioned these five product pillars, and I think it's quite obvious what product thinking is, what UX, what visual is, but you've mentioned two others, teamwork and a leadership. Those are much harder to show through a portfolio. Those are much harder to show perhaps even in an interview. In some interviews, you might have a, uh, a whiteboard exercise where you get to work with someone in the team. So perhaps you get to display your teamwork capabilities there. But teamwork and leadership, those are relatively hard to show in interviews. So are there any example of someone you've ever, ever interviewed where you've seen them do that really well or any other advice there on how to show those uh, to make sure you also cover those two pillars, not just the ones that are a bit more kind of expected and normal to talk about. Yeah, those first three are definitely your hard skills. But yeah, teamwork and leadership are the soft skills of your role. And especially when you work in larger organizations, those are the things that I think you need to, we need to, you really do need to give signal on. I think teamwork's a little bit easier to quantify because you like to think that you, the, the person applying is working in a multidisciplinary team. They've got to work with engineers. They've got to work probably with other cross-functional partners, but also designers across the organization. Boiling it really down, like teamwork is, can you articulate your vision? Can you articulate your designs to engineers, to product, and, and how you work with your product partners? How do you work with engineers? That kind of stuff. Leadership is the hardest one to quantify because especially for people in the IC track, they might bulk at that and go, I don't want to be a manager. Why, do you, why are you asking me about leadership questions? And it's, okay, let's pull it back. So leadership is like how you represent your discipline within the team, but also within like your business area. So how you push for your design principles, how do you ensure that we're following those design principles right from the moment you put pen to paper in your, on, in your sketch through Figma and now it's in the hands of a user. That's really about what the leadership qualities that we're looking for. So I, I interview a lot of senior folks or people who are just moving into that senior role. And one one example I've had recently is I've been working a lot with this mentee and they've just got a, a new job in a little startup. And they were really struggling to crack into, really struggling with their head of design and in that they had a particular way of working. And... The, the, I think the head of design was pushing back on, was really wanting a lot more rigor and thoughtfulness in how we set up Figma files. And my mentee was like, I definitely appreciate that kind of rigor, but it's going to take us away from doing this work over here, which is hitting our metrics and generating value for users. And he was like, no, no, we need to, we need to, we need to focus on this. And that the example of leadership there was like, he managed upwards. He was able to, see the view of his head of design and he respected that but he was like okay but here's the case that if we don't do that work we're going to miss out on hitting these targets and metrics and he didn't call his head of design out he calmly wrote the business case out and he, he provided some options and ultimately the head of design gone okay cool let's park that figma cleanup project for a while and we'll focus on these. But when we've got some downtime over the Christmas period, let's go back. And he was like, yeah, wicked. So that's a great example of leadership, I think. Yeah, that's a really good example. And I, I like the fact that you're bringing examples because it's one thing saying, oh, you should display leadership qualities. And it's a whole other thing to actually hear how someone has done it. And I think it, it, it explains it a little bit better what you mean. So thank you for that. Keeping on the topic of interviews, what are some mistakes that you see 
too many designers do. I'm wondering someone listening today might go into an interview tomorrow and perhaps uh, is about to make one of these mistakes. Uh, what, what would that be uh, that they should avoid doing? I think the number one mistake that I see a lot of people that I interview doing is around not preparing for the interview, which sounds so obvious, but it's a reoccurring pattern. I've had plenty of interviews in for when I've been interviewed for roles in personal banking for Monzo for an app. So we're, we are recruiting for a designer to work on an app where they've their case study they picked has been for like a, a SaaS portal. There's a number of problems that like, A, it's not an app. It's not an iOS or Android app that they're designing for. So you're missing out on the, like the native patterns. But also the whole user context is different and the whole business context is different. If you're designing for a SaaS product, it's different to a consumer product. So even just like going, okay, what am I applying for? And then customizing your application towards that. It does require a little bit more work. It does require you to research a bit more into the, the business that you're applying for, but you should be doing that anyway, I think. So that is the number one thing that I've, and I, it keeps on surprising me that I have to push back or have to reject applicants because they've not researched the business uh, or they've not researched the role. So how do you deal with a situation when you want to apply for a job at Bonzo, let's say, you're going to work on an app, but perhaps you don't have any B2C experience in your, or perhaps the B2C experience that you have is not on a specific app, it's more web-based or is the, is it a matter of saying, look, you have to go find some experience and try a lot of different things? Or is it a matter of saying, perhaps you know, don't apply to jobs that don't match your experience? Or is it a matter of saying, somehow adapt the experience that you have and the portfolio that you have to that role, even if it's not necessarily the exact same type of job that you've done before? What? How would you approach that? Yeah, that's a great question, Christian. I think it's a lot harder for people at the beginning of their career to showcase like a breadth of skills if they've only got web experience and then they're applying for an app for you to pick out those signals and prove that you've got like the desire to learn more about native patterns or whatnot or to work more in a product design centric company it's a lot harder so i'm not going to ever take that away from people at the beginning of their career when you've got a few more years experience, it, it becomes a little bit easier to try and tease out what people who are interviewing are looking for. So going back to those five pillars of like product thinking, UX, visual design, teamwork, and leadership. If your all of your portfolio is web-based and you go, okay, I want to go, I want to crack into the app market. I think taking a little bit of time to understand the differences between your two worlds of web and app. And then acknowledging that within your interview process and say, I've got mainly web experience, but I believe that I can add value to your organization. I believe through the experience that I've got, that's not always going to help. <laughs> like you, 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 that's at the end of the day, if you're, if we're hiring for a pure IC role, there's a lot of context. There's a lot of, a lot of things that are, are at play, but at least by acknowledging the differences and knowing where you can add the value um, and then showcasing that as, as the most effective way as possible, that, that you, you've probably got a better chance of then just going in saying, I'm, I'm applying for a job and here's my web portfolio. It's more a case of just like understanding like the differences, like identifying those gaps, but here, like identifying where you could have filled those gaps differently. And rather than the surfaces that you're designing for, leaning into those five pillars, because I have hired web designers or people who have got more web experience than app experience. And it's just, it's a, we take it by a case by case basis. I think it's, this show, shows awareness, which is so important in an interview when you have a candidate in front of you who's aware of the, the gaps that he's not feeling, perhaps he's aware of things he could do better. A question that often is asked in interviews is, if you would have to do this project all over again, or if you had more time, what would you do differently? And the reason we're asking that question is because we want to see, are you aware? Have you considered, have you done a, a post-mortem? Have you considered what could have been better? Are you aware? And I think what you're saying there is uh, playing that same tune of, it's important to be aware that even if you don't necessarily have that experience that they're looking for, perhaps figuring out how you can take your experience and 
mapping it onto what the, this new role is looking for and then talking it, talking about it like that. I like that. My, I think what you said there that I really liked, and I just want to highlight that, is if your experience is just so different, if the surfaces you're designing for are so different than the job you're going for, perhaps when you present your case study, do it more from the perspective of these principles rather than the perspective of that specific surface. And then someone who's interviewing you might look at it and think, yeah, he hasn't designed for iOS before, but look, he understands the principles of what we're really looking for here. So I, I very much like that. And I think it's uh, such a great idea. Let's talk a little bit of about designing for a bank. When you think about designing for a bank, all that's coming to my head is a million constraints. You can't do this, you can't do that. You have to, in some cases, you have regulations. How is it to have a design team that has to work with a lot of constraints? Constraints breed creativity. It's a fundamental of that. I think you said it right at the beginning when we were discussing this before the show. I, and I definitely subscribe to this way of thinking. If you are designing without constraints, that's art. That is, it is art, which is wonderful and uh, like amazing, crack on, but you, you're not doing design if you don't have a certain amount of constraints. I've worked in regulated businesses for nearly 10 years. I, I don't think I've ever felt constrained in the design by being in a regulated business. There are obviously things that you have to be compliant about. When you boil down what these compliance laws and regulations are, it's about being consumer-centric. It's about being user-centric. It's not about having dark patterns to nudge people into doing something. Pre-working in reg regulated businesses, I found a lot of my time was trying to convince stakeholders not to do something bad <laughs> towards the customer or the person using your things. The FCA regulations, so the regulatory body that regulates Onzo, um, they, their customer outcomes are the foundations of be, being an ethical business. Yeah, it's, it's doing your job as a designer for you almost because you've got to start from a customer-centric point of view in the first place. I think where the difference is with my experience in Monzo is that we've come from a place where we've disrupted the industry. We've changed the game and now we're looking about how we can change it again, which is a great position to be. We are in a position where, A, we've got superb leadership like the leadership of Bonzo is absolutely second to none, best leadership I've team I've ever had pleasure working under. And in that leadership team, we have people from banking experience, but like people who work in risk and compliance who are the, the most open-minded people that you could ever work with. There's a sense that people, well, I, especially in my experience, a sense that people that work in risk and compliance are just going to shut down your ideas all the time. But actually, when you're starting from a consumer-centric point of view anyway, then they're not going to shut your ideas down. So it's breeded a really nice, interesting, creative space for you to work with them. So yeah, it helps at Monzo. We've got this culture of really trying to push the, the buck as much as possible. Like I said, we've changed the game once, like how can we change it again? And having a relationship with our regulators. So the, we are, and some of the regular regulations that have come in are because of the challenger banks influencing and agitating for a more customer-centric point of view from the industry rather than being beholden to these regulations it's like within reason you, you can we have a dialogue and like how can we like push for better customer outcomes that is good for the customer but also creates sustainable businesses so yeah, like the long and short of it is if you've got great leadership, you've got that culture of, of disruption anyway, and you've got a dialogue with your regulators, then I think that's a very powerful position to be in. I like the way you've reframed constraints as uh, they're just doing, they're, they're doing a job for you. I, I never thought about it like that, but I guess that is the benefit perhaps of working in a regulated industry is that you have a body that regulates the company that has the customer's interest in mind first. So I like that. But I yeah. also think there's con con the word constraint can sound negative. I can't do this because of that. I, there's something in the way of me reaching my goal. And whether that's a business being regulated or whether that's simply a constraint that you have at work in a non-regulated, completely typical business, the constraint that an engineer puts on your work. 
or the constraint that the business puts on how much time you can spend on this or that feature or the constraint of the geography or the, the internet speed of our users, whatever it may be. I think constraints breed creativity, like you said earlier. And I, I, I just can't stress that enough, that constraint is actually not a bad thing. And oftentimes getting a constraint pushes your work to be better than when you didn't have the constraint. It's just so counterintuitive to me, but it, I've had so many examples of this happening where suddenly there's a new constraint popping in and you think, oh no, the world's over. And two weeks later, working with that constraint, you've made the work better. So I like to push for people to think of constraints as something that makes their work better rather than worse. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's probably more about reframing it as an opportunity, which sounds very therapy speak, but it is true. Like a constraint can come out of nowhere at the, at the 11th hour and really throw you off. And I know like I've been there many a times and it is frustrating space to be in, but reframing it as, a, as an opportunity to really push your design or push for more customer centricity is, is what we should be striving for as designers. Yeah. Nate, let's bring this one home. I have two questions that I always ask at the end of uh, the, the, the episode. The first one is, what is one action that you've done in your career that you think led to your success, perhaps in one way or another, separated you from some of your peers? Yeah, I think I, t I spoke about this earlier, but getting into service design and understanding what service design is really helped me. I got a job at an agency that specialized in service design, but it was more of a public sector thing at the time. But this agency that I was working for, they really want to push it in the private sector. And it really changed the way I thought about design as a whole. It was a much more collaborative effort, service design, and a much more in the marketing world, you call it omni-channel or multi-channel experience. But what that effectively is service design. It's like thinking about like the context that the customer or the user's in and then understanding like their whole experience rather than just the touch points and services that you're designing for. So that was a real turning point for me. It's like breaking out the silo of your of the Figma file on the screens that you're designing for and just getting out and mapping it up and mapping it on a whiteboard and getting out there and speaking to customers and changing that map and having that more holistic view of design was, was a real turning point for me. And even though I don't work in a service design these days, like that mentality still sticks with me. Like I, even the other day I was having a conversation with a team that I work with and they're like, oh, how do we get a signal about where this customer has come from? I was like, let's map it out. Let's speak to marketing and get their view. And they're like, oh, yeah, we can speak to our data partners in marketing and understand like where the customers come from and then tweak our experience further down the funnel, further down the journey to, to represent the, the customer view a bit better. So it's really about breaking out of this, the, the design that you're working with right now and looking at the whole experience. Uh, rather than rather than just the screens that you're looking at now. Thank you. And what are we not talking enough about when it comes to design? We're definitely talking a lot about AI, so I'm not going to say that. <laughs> I think we're not talking about the practicalities of a truly integrated brand experience. And, uh, and I mean that from a brand point of view as well. It's like tone of voice, the look and feel, how your customer experiences your brand on all the touch points that they experience. So it's so easy to get wrapped up as a designer to just think about the, the screens that we're designing in Figma today. But, and this is one of the ops designers at Monzo, he says that we are all designing for ops. So he works with our customer op operations team. So we design our own back office system for them to log or complaints or like tickets with customers and whatnot. But his view, which is absolutely right, is that the, whatever you're designing right now, whether that's like payments experience or adding a category to a payment or splitting a bill or transfer of money, all of that is going to have an ops cost. That's going to have an operations cost down the line. And so if your payments experience breaks for a customer, the customer is going to get on the chat or get, get on the phone and speak to a customer operations person who's going to interact with um, the ops designer's uh, interface. And that's the brand experience. So 
I don't think designers are talking much about that brand experience, that whole holistic view. And that's hard, right? Because then you could be here forever talking about how your brand experience maps across the whole organization and the whole their whole experience. So it's nothing that like I think designers should action right away, but it's something I think we should start having conversations more in businesses is that go and speak to your ops designer, go and speak to your like your peer in another part of the organization and then agitate for more brand experience thinking up into the business as well. If you're seeing that we're not crossing silos to weave better experiences for customers, then further down the line, you're going to end up in a situation where you've got a lot of design debt, you've got a lot of brand debt, effectively experience debt, because you've, you're not tying these experiences up. And that's multifaceted. That's not only the user's experience, the customer's experience, but how your tone of voice comes across as well, or how your brand comes across. So it's, it's really easy just to slap on a, a chat bot onto your interface and it looks completely different. And then when you've got a problem, you go into the chat service and it looks really different and it's really jarring and the experience isn't great, that you're not carrying that brand experience on through their sort of customer operations channels. And that's a trust-breaking experience there if you're not if you're not carrying that across. So what I'm proud of working at Monzo is that we do have that that that's that same ease of use, that same brand experience when things are going wrong because that's really when the customer really needs you and it's going to really your brand is going to be put under the spotlight so throwing them into an experience that is trust breaking or like it looks completely different or the tone of voice is off it's very clear that you're speaking to a robot or something like that if you're not if you're not set that brand expectation already is just going to erode your trust and relationship with that customer so yeah, so the I don't think we're talking about the practicalities of a truly integrated brand experience in business at the moment. Thank you for that. If people want to follow along with your journey or can touch with you or get mentored by you, whatever it may be, where would they be able to go ahead and do that? Yes, so I'm Nate Langley on LinkedIn. I'm also offering mentorship spaces on ADP list which I, yeah, I'm quite active on. So yeah, hit me up in those spaces. Cool. We'll make those easily accessible in the show notes so people can find you. Nate, this has been a very wholesome uh, conversation. Very thankful for you coming on the show. I hope you, you had as much fun as uh, I did. And uh, yeah, uh, we'll speak soon. Awesome. Thanks very much, Christian. If you've listened this far, Thank you. I appreciate you and I hope you've learned something that makes you just a little bit better than yesterday. You can check out the show notes on designmeetsbusiness.co. If this has taught you anything, please consider leaving a review and sharing the episode with someone else who could learn from it. And I'll catch you in the next one.